Let's pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would come in great compassion and mercy and that you would speak to us through your word. Fill this place, fill the message, fill our hearts with the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would deliver us from the sorrows of a wasted life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are taking a one-week break from our series in the life of Abraham. I have felt led to preach, I hope by God's Spirit, uh, to preach what might be called a topical sermon. That is a sermon that takes up a particular topic in the Bible uh, and that is not necessarily connected to a larger series of sermons through a particular book in the Bible. I nonetheless hope to expound a passage of Scripture and to apply it to our lives, which indeed every sermon ought to be. I'd like to provide this morning a very brief and general exposition of the parable of the talents found in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, which Ben read a moment ago. I encourage you to turn there if you're not there already. And I intend to establish what I think is the major principle for discipleship that we're to learn from the parable of the talents, and then I'd like to apply that principle in a very specific way. This sermon emerges from a pastoral burden, a burden that I have for myself and for my wife and for my children, a sermon that I have for my closest friends, a sermon that I have for the flock of Emmanuel Church, a sermon that I have for the children and the young people here, a burden that I have indeed for every true follower of Christ. The burden is related to how Christians go about making the big decisions in their lives. What they will study in school, what they will do for a career, who they will marry, if and how many children they will have, whether they will live, or excuse me, where they will live, how they will spend their money, how they will spend their marginal time, what church they will join, how they will use their retirement years, these and a thousand other decisions of immense importance. To be perfectly frank, I am concerned that many Christians are making decisions that are not sufficiently informed by the Bible's teaching on the purpose of life and the priorities of Christ's kingdom. If you were to ask the average high school senior, what do you plan to major in when you go to college? He or she would likely answer something like, I'm going to major in engineering. And if you asked him or her why, he or she would likely answer, because I've always been good at math. That answer on its own, assuming it is sincere and genuine, would be an inadequate answer and would not be reflective of a biblical and Christian perspective when it comes to godly decision-making. If you were to ask the average young couple, do you plan to have children? And assuming you are able, how many children do you hope to have? They will likely answer something like, we hope to have three children. And then if you asked them why, they'd probably say something like, well, we just figured three is a good number. And that answer, on its own, assuming it is sincere and genuine, would be an inadequate answer that would not be reflective of a biblical and Christian perspective when it comes to godly decision-making. If you were to ask a retired Christian couple, what is your goal for your retirement years? 
they would likely answer something like, well, we would really love to garden, to travel, and to spend as much time with our grandkids as possible. That answer, on its own, assuming it is sincere and genuine, would be an inadequate answer and would not be reflective of a biblical and Christian perspective when it comes to godly decision-making. I have pastoral anxiety as I watch Christians making decisions all the time based on reasons that appear to me, at least, to have little to nothing to do with anything the Bible teaches us about the purpose of life and the priorities of Christ's kingdom. Again, imagine the Christian young person choosing a major or a career. Typically, the answer will be something like, well, I'm studying English because I like English, or studying English is what best suits my personality and my talents, or I identify with English majors, and I see what others of my peers have done in selecting the major, and it seems that I should follow suit. All of those reasons given on their own are utterly inadequate reasons for pursuing a major in English, and yet they're standard fare among most professing Christian young people as they choose a major. Unless you think this sermon is going to pile on the youth and the current generation, I'm not persuaded that the maturity of our answers grow at all as we enter into middle age or into older age as well. It seems that most decisions people make, even Christian people make, they make on the basis of preference, on convenience, on a sense of one's own personality and gifts and abilities, and on a sense of comfort. This morning I hope to set forth a better way to think about our lives and the decisions we must make in our lives based on Jesus' words in the parable of the talents. And so the rest of this sermon will fall simply under two main points. The first point is exposition. The second point is application. Exposition, application, expounding Matthew 25, 14 through 30, and then I hope to apply the passage. Now, I've had you turn to Matthew's gospel. The internal structure of Matthew's gospel hangs on five major teaching discourses. If you were to read Matthew in its entirety, there are five major teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew. The parable of the talents is located in the fifth and final of those discourses. We sometimes refer to it as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave this discourse while sitting upon the Mount of Olives. And the Olivet Discourse runs from Matthew 24, verse 1, to chapter 26 and verse 5. And there's a lot that's mysterious in terms of the material contained in the Olivet Discourse. But one of the major themes of the discourse is how disciples should live in light of the imminent return of their Lord. So that's very prominent in chapter 24. And one of the things we learn in chapter 24, the first chapter in the Olivet Discourse, is that the coming of the Lord will be like a thief in the night. It'll be like lightning flashing across the sky, Jesus says. No one knows the day or the hour. Uh, Christ's coming will not be predicted, it will be sudden, it will come in an unexpected kind of way. And Matthew 24 develops the idea that, that, that supposing Christ could come literally at any moment, and He can come at any moment, He could come before I'm through with this sermon, in light of the fact that Christ can come and return at any moment, well, how should His disciples live? And what Jesus essentially teaches is that those disciples living in light of the fact that the time between now and the return of Christ could be very short, the effect that should have on our lives is that we should be busy about our master's work. Not looking up to the skies, wondering, okay, is he going to come now? Okay, maybe a minute from now. But rather, if we know the master is going to return at any moment, 
We want to be found not ashamed of what we're doing, but busy about the work of serving Christ's kingdom. Well, then you get to chapter 25, and Jesus sort of opens this up further. Again, the return of the master is in view, but now in chapter 25, the issue is, what if the return of the master is not maybe a few moments from now? What if his return, which we don't know when it will be, what if it proves to be very long in coming? Or as verse 5 has it, what if the bridegroom is delayed? Or as verse 19 has it, what if the master takes a long time to return? Well, then how should we live? If the time between now and the coming of the Lord Jesus is longer than we might have expected, even longer than our lifespan, well, then how should we live? And what we learn is the answer is the very same. If the return of Christ is to be many years far off, even after the day of our death, what are we to spend our time doing? We're to be busy about our master's work. We're to be engaged in his service, in serving his kingdom, whether the time until his return is short or long, we should be engaged in serving Christ in a way that would not make us ashamed if his return was today or 50 years from now or 500 years from now. Well, I'm not going to open up the first of those parables in chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. I'm going to open up this morning the parable of the talents contained in verses 14 through 30. I really am just going to provide a cursory exposition of this passage. I'm not going to reflect on many of the details. I just want to give you the general thrust such that a six-year-old child sitting here could understand the basic purpose, the basic meaning of the parable of the talents. The setup begins with establishing the slave-master relationship. So it begins with this master who's going away on his journey, and he's entrusting property to his, it says, servants in the ESV. The Greek word is doulos. There really is no way to translate that word doulos other than slave. I mean, that is the idea of the word doulos. Uh, uh, funnily enough, uh, if you know what a doula is, someone who assists in the delivery of a baby, that's actually a female slave. That's where that word comes from. I know some of you are interested in being doulas. Maybe not so much now that you know the etymology of that word. But a doulos is a slave. Now, we should not imagine that slavery in New Testament times is like what slavery was in this country 150, 200 years ago. Uh, but nonetheless, it's important for Jesus in the telling of this parable to establish the slave-master relationship. And clearly in this passage, Jesus is the master. His disciples are reckoned to be his slaves or his servants. And indeed, that slave-master imagery is used throughout the New Testament to describe our relationship to our master, to our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should recognize that what is emphasized, what is coming across in this parable with that slave-master relationship So we are to understand that Christ, our Savior, is Christ our Lord. Jesus is our Master. We answer to Him. We are His servants. We are His slaves. We are His subjects. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is the Master. And let no one mistake this. None can have Jesus as Savior who does not have Jesus as Lord. You may not have access to Jesus, the Savior, unless you embrace Him as the Lord over all, indeed the Lord over all the details of your life. Romans 10, 9, we're to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, whoever does that and believes that God has raised Him from the dead, He will be saved. The material point of this slave-master setup, this relationship, is to make clear that Jesus is the master, that we are his servants. 
and there should be nothing but total clarity as to who answers to whom. He is our Lord. He is our master. But now a second observation about the setup of the parable. We see here that the master, presumably Christ himself in the parable, the master bestows property or gifts or assets upon the servants for them to steward. So he takes his property, his assets, his resources, bestows them upon the servants for them to steward. But make no mistake, the property is the master's. It's his assets and his resources and his gifts that he is giving to the servants, to the slaves, for their faithful stewardship and guarding and investing of those things that belong to the master. So look, if you would, at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability that he went away. So he's taking what is his, he's giving it to the servants. He's entrusting it to their care. And we read, he gives to one slave five talents, to another two, to another one. Now the word talent in our modern parlance would be a reference typically to one's native skills or abilities. If I say, uh, oh, oh, uh, so-and-so sings, has such a talent for singing. I'm saying they have this skill, this ability to sing well. That's not the way this word is being used here. Talent, in this passage, we talk about the parable of the talents. It's not the parable of the native gifts that God gives to people. A talent was a unit of exchange. It was, it was currency, basically. And it was currency worth quite a lot of money, several thousands upon thousands of dollars. To give someone five talents was to give them a massive sum of money, a massive stewardship that this master is giving to his slaves. And the text says in verse 15 that he gives to each one according to his ability. Now, what is emphasized is not really the slave's ability or capacity to handle large amounts of money. Rather, what is emphasized is the master's prerogative to assign the talents as he chooses and to expect a return on those assets entrusted. The emphasis is on his prerogative, his fiat, his authority to say, I'm going to give to this one this amount, and to this one this amount, and to this one this amount, and it is his prerogative to expect a return on the investment that's been entrusted to each one of the servants. But what we have to appreciate is these talents are the master's property. We servants are the stewards of his property. Well, what happens? How does the parable go? Very simple narrative here. The first servant invests the five talents, and he yields 100% return. He had five talents, however many thousands of dollars that was, and after some time, he has five talents more. He was a shrewd investor of his master's money. But as you think about what this investment looked like, don't think about investing money today. There was no New York Stock Exchange in those days. There was no Dow Jones Industrial Average or S&P 500. There was no Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or whatever people invest their money in nowadays. To invest money was not like finding a really hot tech stock, calling up your broker and putting the money in there and waiting and then all of a sudden having returns. To invest money in those days to yield a 100% return would have taken quite a lot more work than that. Uh, if someone were to take five talents and invest that money in such a way that they would yield a 100% return, it meant 
buying a field here and buying a vessel there and sending it out to do trade and buying, buying a, a farm here and, and, and securing certain laborers to do this kind of work and to uh, uh, exchange goods in the market, it would take quite a lot of work. And it would be bringing together all these little marginal returns here or there. It wasn't like hitting the lottery. It was like putting money to diligent use in the marketplace in order over many years to bring about a maximal return, and that's what this servant does. We read in Matthew 25, verse 20, and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I'm not going to say more about the differences between uh, this kind of slavery we have in Christ and the slavery that different peoples in the world have had even in this country 150 years ago, except to say this, this is so qualitatively different. This master shares all good things with his servants. He invites them into his very own joy. He is a spectacularly generous master by any standard. And this faithful servant he brings in to his eternal joy to share all the things with his master. Well, where do things go from here? The second slave does exactly the same thing. He invests the two talents he was given, and he doubles his value. And you'll notice the Lord responds to him in exactly the same way. It's actually the exact same reward that this servant is given. He says to the second servant, also, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I'm just going to lay on the floor here this application because we're not going to pick it up later, but it's, it's worth identifying here. You'll notice the one servant was entrusted with more originally than the other. One was entrusted with five talents and one with two talents. The reward for faithfulness was exactly the same for both servants. Both servants are entering into the joy of their master. And so I just want to give this point of application by the wayside here. You are not responsible, brother and sister, for your other brother or sister's talents. You're responsible for your own talents. And you need not be concerned whether so-and-so has been given more than you or less than you. You be faithful with your own lot. And the promise is to you, if you're faithful with whatever God has given you, whatever much or whatever little, whatever God has given you, the promise to you is there is an everlasting reward that this master will share all good things with you. It's not about the quantity of gifts. It's about faithfulness to the master and receiving the gracious reward that he gives to all those who are faithful with whatever they have. But how about the third slave now? He essentially sits on his master's money. He does nothing with it. In fact, it wastes away and loses its value while in his care. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. 
For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now how does that sound to you? Does that sound a bit severe, the master's treatment toward this third servant? That is how the master treats this unfaithful servant, and we get no sense from Jesus that he interprets this behavior as anything other than just and right. Remember, he is the master, and it's his prerogative to deal with the unfaithful servant in this way who was unfaithful with the goods entrusted to his care. Remember, Jesus Christ is our master, we are his servants, and we answer to him. Anything we have is His property, the fruit of His gracious dispensation, His gracious gift. We are merely stewards. Christian, you recognize this. Whatever you have in life, whatever God has given you by way of His assets, His resources, His gifts, He has entrusted to you, and He is your master. He is your Lord. You serve at His command. You serve at His call. He is in the place of authority over us. Now, just as an aside, we live in a severely anti-authoritarian age. And in this anti-authoritarian age, we may live in one of the most anti-authoritarian cultures in all the world. And it's not in vogue even among Christians to think of Jesus in this way as a master or a Lord to whom we answer. A, a king before whom we are his subjects. And the thought goes, if I'm to enjoy a loving and warm and intimate walk with my Savior, well, surely that excludes the whole idea that I should think in a slave-master kind of relationship or a, a servant-to-a-lord type of relationship. Yet this is the consistent witness of the New Testament, that Jesus is the master, that He is the Lord of His people. He is our king. He is our teacher. He is our Lord and our Master, and we answer to Him. But not only is our age anti-authoritarian, that is against the idea of authorities at all, but we live in an age that would seek to persuade us that even the idea of authority must exclude the dynamic of love. In other words, love must be excluded, cannot exist in a relationship in which one has authority over another. I don't know where that idea originated. It is a severely bad idea. Brothers and sisters, please do not embrace that idea. The language the Bible uses to describe Jesus' lordship over us and the fact that He is our King and the fact that He is our Master is filled with the most tender expressions of love. And we see it here in our our own passage in the parable of the talents. This Master in treating His faithful servants, invites them in to share the joy that is His very own. He's saying, come into my house. Come and be a co-heir with me. Enjoy all the good and gracious gifts that I have. I have them for you. In other words, this is a tender expression of love that this master has for his servants. We sing in the rendition of Psalm 23 that we will sometimes sing here. We refer to the Lord as the King of love. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine 
forever. That is something of the sweetness of the gospel. That this Lord, this Master, this King has so graciously and sweetly and lovingly drawn me into His friendship. Drawn me into His company. He's still my Lord. He's still my Master. He's still my King. But that's what's so wonderful about it. The Lord of glory, the Master of all, He shares His table with a slave and servant like me. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that the existence of authority in a relationship must exclude the dynamic of love. But let us maintain this. Jesus is our master. Christian, He is your Lord. You bow the knee to Him. You answer to Him. You serve at His pleasure. He is your creator, your sustainer, your redeemer, and your savior. And yes, He is your Lord. But that leads now, finally, to what I think is the main principle that this parable is meant to show us. What's the principle Jesus is getting across to His disciples through the parable of the talents? We're still under this first heading of exposition, coming to an end here. What's the principle? What's the point Jesus is getting across through this parable? It is this. As we wait for the Lord's return, as we wait for the Lord's return, live in our lives in service to Him, as we wait for the Lord's return, we are to do so as servants commissioned to invest and improve our master's assets. That's the point Jesus is making. As we live our lives, and as we do so in light of the return of Christ, which could be many years off, perhaps even after the day we die, we are to be busy about investing the gifts, the resources, the assets our Lord has entrusted to us. That's simple enough, right? I mean, you hardly need me to make that point. A cursory reading of the passage could establish that point. Whatever God has given me, it's one of His disciples, whatever assets, whatever gifts, whatever resources, whatever He has given me of His, I am to invest it for His glory. I'm to invest His gifts to me in order to bring a return into His kingdom for His glory. And of course, the principle established by the parable of the talents is consistent with what we see in many other well-known passages that articulate a similar idea. That is that all of life, everything we got, all of life is to be lived in service to and for the glory of the Lord, and that we are stewards of what God has given to us, and all of life is to be lived in service to and for His glory. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, Work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. My life is like a living sacrifice. The breath that I take, my heart beats. This body, this human frame is a living sacrifice of worship. All that I do, all that I say, all that I think is to form something of a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You all know, I hope the smallest children here know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so then whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Do all to the glory of God. All of life, even eating and drinking, even the details, not just the big things, but the small things. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And wasn't it Jesus Himself who said the great commandment in the law is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. You have all of these texts, subtle differences between them, one major point. All that we have is to be given, is to be offered, is to be invested in service to our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in the framework of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we are to take our Master's assets, which He has freely bestowed on us, and invest and improve them in His service and for His glory. That's the exposition. Secondly, application. All I want to do in the time that remains is apply this principle, which we've derived from the parable of the talents, in a very particular way. What application does this principle have for how we make the big, and I'd say even the small, decisions in our lives? You're trying to decide on a major. You're trying to decide on which job to take. You're trying to decide if you should marry this man or woman. You're trying to decide how many children to have. You're trying to decide how to school your kids. You're trying to decide if you should make a career change. You're trying to decide when to retire. You're trying to decide which church to join. You're trying to decide where you're going to live and root your life. You're trying to decide how you're going to spend your money. You're trying to decide how you're going to spend your marginal time. So many decisions. Indeed, everyone here I'm sure is confronted with one of those decisions that I just read out to you. Here's my question. What organizing principle should regulate these decisions? What unifying goal can direct us in all of our decision-making? What integrative criterion can be supplied to help us answer the perennial question, how shall we then live? As servants of the Master, as followers of Christ, as men and women living for God's glory, here is the issue. Here is the question we need to be asking ourselves. Here's the organizing principle. We're to ask ourselves, what is my maximum service potential in the kingdom of God? What is my maximum service potential in the kingdom of God? And upon discovering the answer to that question, upon learning what my maximum service potential is in the kingdom of God, we should pursue it with prayerful and diligent devotion. What's the organizing principle for the decisions I make in my life? What's the unifying goal? It is to be my maximum service potential in God's kingdom. 
Whatever will serve that goal, whatever will accommodate that aim and achieve that vision, that's what I'm going to do. Then all my decisions, big and small, will be, God helping me, productive to that end. I discover what is my maximum service potential, and then I work backwards. So I see that this is what I think I could be by the grace of God. As I assess the resources, the assets, the gifts that God has given me, that's the life I want to live. That's a life well lived in service to Jesus Christ. And then I work backwards. All the questions about what I'm going to major in and who I'm going to marry and where I'm going to live and what church I'm going to join, they're all productive to maximal fruitfulness in service to the master. Some heady people will refer to that as reverse engineering. Ever heard that phrase? For some reason, whenever I think of that phrase, I think of, um, have you seen Beauty and the Beast? I'm not talking about the really lame live action one that came out a few years ago. I'm talking about the classic, the best thing Disney ever did. And in, in Beauty and the Beast, Belle, she's the girl, the heroine of the story, she has the kooky dad, crazy old Maurice, and crazy old Maurice is a tinkerer and an inventor, and he enters the Beast's castle. Y'all tracking with me? I hope you've seen this movie, otherwise it's just going to fall flat. But, but here's Maurice, and he's in the castle, and, and this is right when he realizes all the furniture and all the different possessions in the house are animate, they're alive. And one of the, the objects is a clock. It's uh, Cogsworth. And Cogsworth is talking, and he just realizes that the clock is talking, and he's tinkering with it, and he opens up the little chest, and he starts tinkering around with the little parts, trying to see, because he's an inventor, what, what are the composite parts that put together this clock in order to make it animate and alive and able to talk like this. This is fascinating to him. But what did he do? He sees the talking clock, and then he tinkers with it to know, okay, now what parts would I have to put together in order to create a similar clock, in order to achieve a similar vision? That's how reverse engineering works. And that's something of what we're to do in light of the parable of the talents, to see this is what faithfulness to Christ looks like. This is the kind of life, God being my helper, that I can live in service to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what worthy and healthy investment looks like. Now, what decisions would I have to make in order to achieve that maximum service potential in the kingdom of God? I work backwards from what the Bible reveals faithfulness to Christ to look like. But the point is, I'm aiming to bring as much glory to God as I can with my life. Is that your aim, brothers and sisters? What can I do? How can I live to bring the most glory to Christ that I can? I had a wonderful pastor's wife growing up. She had a magnet on her refrigerator, and it said, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. You get that little punchy little quote? It's true. And there are a lot of people aiming at nothing, and they have a 100% success rate. What is your aim in life? Why are you making the decisions that you're making? Why are you living in the way that you're living? Are you pursuing the maximum service potential in the kingdom of God? Maximal investment of the gifts and the resources that God has given to me that I might bring a return into his kingdom. What's the goal of all of this? Where is all of this headed? Where is it going? The master has given us his assets, his resources, his gifts. All that we have is a gift from his hand. The question is, what will we do with it? 
that will glorify Him? That's the question. Brothers, each of us should be asking this question. God has given you two hands, and He's given you two feet, and He's given you a heart, and He's given you a brain. And He's given each one of us peculiar gifts and assets and resources, and we are meant to improve it all to the glory of King Jesus. To employ it all. I'm to ask myself, how can I take all of this that the Lord has given to me, and how can I maximize it in service to the Lord Jesus Christ? By His grace and for His glory, what is the best my life can offer in service to my Lord? What's the most amount of juice I can squeeze out of this little life of mine? If that's the principle, if that's the unifying aim, the goal, my maximum service potential and service to the glory of Christ, can you understand now the folly of choosing to pursue an English degree entirely because you like English? What has that got to do with anything? I, I like engineering. I'm good at math. I think I can do this well. Well, so what? That says nothing to me about the purpose for which you're living. The singular Christian, biblical aim of your life. Or marrying that boy because he's cute and he makes you laugh and he's got the kind of character that mama and dad would approve of. Or taking that job because it will place you close to family. Friends, we don't make decisions on this basis. We must have a better organizing principle. You choose your major because it is consistent with what you understand to be your maximum service potential in the kingdom of Christ, as best as you can figure that out. You marry that boy or that girl because you believe in marrying him or her, you are in line with what you understand to be the maximum good your life can achieve for God's glory. You choose where to live on the basis of where your home and your life need to be based in order to accomplish the greatest possible works you can accomplish in the world in service to Christ the King. Now, the decisions that you make on this basis may have you studying English, may have you doing so in part because you enjoy it, or marrying that boy in part because he makes you laugh, or taking that job in part because it puts you close to mom and dad, but you understand those things are only incidental to the larger aim and the larger goal, which is to maximize my life and the gifts and assets entrusted to me to the glory of God. And if along the way I get to study something that I enjoy, or have a husband who's funny, or get to live in a place that I maybe especially prefer or like, well, glory be to God and thanks be to His name. But those reasons do not rise to an organizing principle or a unifying aim governing your life, telling you how you're to live. We don't make our decisions upon this basis. My fear is on some of this, I think, actually, people give reasons for why they do things, right? But a lot of times people give the reasons they do things because that's the reasons they've been taught to give for why they do things. The answers might lie, you know, deeper beneath the surface. I think a lot of people make these decisions because they're just oriented to follow the crowd. Oh, why are you going to this school? Well, it seems this is what people do, and um, I don't want to stand out, I don't want to be 
different. I'm going to do what people do. Well, why did you buy that house in that community? Wasn't that what you're supposed to do when you have a salary that's this much and when you get your first big paycheck, you buy a house, right, and you get a mortgage? And, and why, are you, why are you retiring now as opposed to 10 years from now? I'm the age when people retire, right? Isn't this what people do? A lot of people are thinking that way. A lot of people following the crowd. But as believers, we are motivated by a higher calling and animated by a different light and spurred by a greater principle. And that is, how can I best please my Lord? What will bring Him pleasure? How can I best invest His assets and approve what He has entrusted to me? That is the organizing principle that is to shape everything else about my life, which means the goal, when asked the question, why did you choose that major? Or why did you want to marry him or her? Why are you choosing to live here and not there? Why did you choose this church? Why did you take this job and not that job? Why are you spending your retirement years in this way? The answer you give must be in some way consistent with what you understand the overall vision and mission of your life to be. I am doing this now, and I am making these decisions because I believe this to be consistent with maximizing my life in service to the glory of Christ. And I'm choosing this because I am convinced this is how I can best please Jesus. Because at the end of the day, His approval is my aim. And His smile is all my reward. I live, I breathe, my heart beats for the pleasure of my Master who is worthy. Now you say, well, that all sounds very grand, Alex. And of course, that's true. We should be living for the glory of God. The first question in the catechism says that, right? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're good Reformed Christians in this room. We all know that. But let's be very practical. How do I go about determining my maximum service potential in the kingdom of God? I can tell you how you don't do it. You don't do it by taking a Myers-Briggs test or discovering what your Enneagram is. There are a lot of people doing what they're doing in life because a personality test told them to do it. This is my personality. This is what I'm like. Can you imagine that on that great and final day when the master returns and he gets to you, the last servant in line, and you say something to him like, well, master, look, I hid your talent in the ground. I hid it under my mattress, but you gotta understand, my Myers-Briggs has me paid pegged as an ISTJ, and my Enneagram is an Enneagram 5, and don't you know ISTJs and Enneagram 5s are especially conservative and risk-averse. So I did what my personality would do, right? My, my ISTJ, Enneagram 5 personality does, and I hid the, the talent under the mattress. How do you think that will go? You're chuckling, but a lot of people live their lives in this way. Well, this is, this is, this is my personality. And my personality is oriented in this way, and that's why I make the decisions that I make based on kind of my temperament and my personality and how I intuit myself to be. No, we don't do what we do on the basis of personality tests, but you don't even do what you do based primarily on an evaluation of what your best skills are. I'm not saying the personality test cannot inform what you do, nor am I saying your skills should not inform what you do, but we have to shake this way of thinking that says, I'm good at math, therefore I should enter engineering. 
Or you know what, my personality type, I'm more of an introvert, therefore I should never speak in front of people. Friends, Moses had a speech impediment. He was the mouthpiece of God. Timothy, Paul's deputy, was timid. He was shy. He was bashful. Didn't stop the apostle Paul from telling him, stir up the gift of God that is within you, brother. Rebuke the false teachers that are in Ephesus. Rebuke the savage wolves. And brother, you preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort in season and out of season. You know Charles Spurgeon, great preacher in London? You know he had a personality disorder that made him anxious in crowds? I mean, is it that? Does God have a sense of humor? I mean, the man never left his doorstep without being surrounded with crowds, and yet he'd have panic attacks sometimes in the context of crowds. His wife, Susanna, was an invalid. Didn't stop her from planting a church after her husband died in her old age. It didn't stop her from founding Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund and sending off 200,000 parcels of books to needy poor pastors all over England. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher of the 20th century, you know that he was one of the most skilled medical doctors in all the world? I mean, he studied with the most elite doctors in all of England. He was top of his class. No doctor in England had a more promising career than Martin Lloyd-Jones. In fact, R.T. Kendall, his successor, wrote in 1981, after the doctor died, he said that this man was of such a genius, he easily would have been prime minister if he had entered politics. And yet, the doctor did not develop his sense of his maximum service potential simply on the things he was good at. He felt that there was a higher calling, more that he could do in service to Christ than being a great doctor or being the prime minister, as lofty as those callings are. Well, how did these saints determine their maximum service potential, and how do we determine what our maximum service potential is in the kingdom of God? In closing now, let me be very practical few encouragements. You want to discern. How can I know? How should I discern how I can maximize my life in service to Christ and His kingdom? Number one, study what is most pleasing to Christ. Study what is most pleasing to Christ. Search out in the Bible what is most pleasing to Him. Read the Scriptures with this eye. Identify. Put a star beside. Make a list of those things that are identified as most pleasing to Jesus Christ, it's not rocket science. What are the things that are most pleasing to the Lord? That we live lives full of good works, that we cultivate and nurture holy character that involves the mortification of sin and the pursuing of godliness and Christ-likeness, that we live for the concerns of Christ's kingdom and the advancement of His church, that we preach and spread the gospel in our relationships and in our spheres of influence, that we seek to stir one another up in the body of Christ to love and good works, that we seek to encourage the faint-hearted and to, to live our lives in service to the poor and the needy. True religion, James says, is to comfort orphans and widows in their distress. It is to provide for our families, lest we be worse than an infidel. It is to love our spouses. It is to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's all kinds of things, a thousand more we can name, that are identified as pleasing to Christ. And as you're trying to set the trajectory for your life, ask this question, how can I live and how can I structure my life in such a way that it will be filled with those things my Lord has identified as especially pleasing to His will? Number two, pray and seek counsel. Pray and seek counsel. What a healthy prayer to go to God and to say, 
Lord, thank you. Thank you for making me a disciple. Thank you for making me a servant of the master. Thank you for drawing me into your kingdom purposes. I know you have given me gifts, however great or small. You've given me gifts. You've entrusted things to me. Lord, help me. Help me to know how to best employ these gifts in service to your kingdom. That's a humble and sweet and God-honoring prayer. Ask the Lord to help you, to give you wisdom, to know how to apply the gifts and the riches and the treasures and the assets that God has given you. And upon praying, seek counsel, because that's so often the way in which the Lord answers our prayers. Go to veteran saints in this church. Find mentors among the many godly and mature men and women of this church and, and seek counsel from them. Hey, I'm trying to discern how I can best use my life for the glory of God. Can you help me think through this? Can we get lunch together? Can we go on a walk and talk about this? I want to please my master. And I wondered if you could help me. Talk to your pastors about this. You know, I don't think in the history of this church, Ben and I have ever declined a meeting that anyone has ever asked for, and we have no plans of ever doing that. But pastors have all kinds of meetings. I think people assume that the life of a pastor is just unending encouragement after encouragement after encouragement, and that, man, every meeting just must be so wonderful all the time. It's not always that way. You have those meetings on your calendar you don't look forward to because you have to talk to people about their sins, and sins get messy, and they create all kinds of ruin and fracture in our lives. There are certain meetings you don't look forward to. But I can tell you what meeting on my calendar will get the gold star every time that, man, I wake up in the morning for this. It's a young person or an older person. This is pastor. I'm trying to think about how I can best serve the Lord. And I recognize he's given me so many gifts and resources. Can I come by the study and talk to you about this? I'd love it if you could just give me some advice on how I can best employ my gifts in service to Christ and for the enjoyment of heaven. We will always pursue those meetings with nothing but eagerness and seek to help you and encourage you. I encourage you, take us up on this. Talk to Pastor Ben, talk to me, talk to some of the veteran saints in this place. Seek counsel and discern how the Lord would lead you and how to use your life for the Lord's glory. And when I encourage us to seek counsel, I'm not just talking about young people. Older folks here also, if the shoe fits, wear it. If that's you, wear that shoe. Find someone you admire and you look up to, using their retirement years well, saying, I, I want to live like you're living, because I see this as a life well lived. I see this as faithful. Can you help me think through this in my own life? I want to lay it all on the table, and I want, I want you to tell me what you think I should do with my life. Number three, assess the peculiar gifts and advantages and resources that God has given you. Assess the peculiar meaning those gifts and resources that might not be common to everybody else, not the kind of gifts that make you weird or peculiar, but those particular gifts, peculiar gifts, and advantages and resources that God has given you. I don't even mean primarily your skills, though your skills may go into the equation. Some of you have a godly Christian heritage that stretches back like four or five generations. I'll just tell you, as someone who does not have that, that's an extraordinary gift, a gift to be coveted in a healthy way. Well, how might you improve that gift that God has given you for the service of Christ and His kingdom? Some of you have many resources. You have lovely homes. You have plenty of money left over once all the bills are paid. How might you use those resources, that lovely home, 
for hospitality, how it might be a harbor for weather-worn souls that have been stuck in the storms at night, coming into your home and finding life and retreat and rest, how many thousands you might serve over the course of your life in that way, how you might serve the poor and the needy. Some of you are exceedingly bright. Well, don't just do what your guidance counselor tells you to do. Ask yourself, all right, the, the Lord, I, I'm not trying to be proud here, if, if He's given me uh, uh, an above average intellect, well, how can I take that and improve that in service to my master? Some of you have a lot of free marginal time. The Lord has just, in His providence, created a situation in which you have an unusual amount of free time. You don't have to work 70 hours a week. How can you best improve that time and seize opportunities that the master has put before you? How can you invest the peculiar gifts and assets and resources that God has given you? Number four, choose good friends who can help you. Choose good friends who can help you. I'm tempted to say I want to emphasize this to the young people, but I, I want middle-aged and older folks to hear me on this as well. Choose good friends who can help you. If you look to your right and you see a doofus, and if you look to your left and you see a bozo, get new friends. No, sincerely, pray for the doofus and the bozo, and don't abandon them, but don't bring a doofus and a bozo into the inner ring, the inner sanctum of your friendships. You know what I'm talking about. Those four or five or six friends who will have the greatest influence over your life. You should love every person you come into contact with. Charles Spurgeon said to me, a follower of Christ means a friend of man. You should be a friend to all, but those particular intimate friendships that you permit to handle your soul and to help shape it and mold it, be judicious in who those friends are. There are people, I'm thinking of someone right now, not in this church, who systematically resists mature and godly and zealous friendships because she knows those friendships will promote her and provoke her to do things that she doesn't want to do, make sacrifices she doesn't want to make. And she resists those friendships. Why? Because our friends have an influence on us. Proverbs say, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Who are you walking with? Who are you allowing into that inner ring? Brothers and sisters, we want friends, we want to surround ourselves with brothers and sisters who will stir us up to love and good works, who will challenge us, who will be thoughtful about us. You know, brother, sister, I've been considering you, I'm thinking about you, I can see, I can see God preparing a path for you to serve Him in this way. And I want to encourage you in that. Can I pray for you that God will help you? And can I be a support to you along the way in seeking to fulfill those good works that the Lord has prepared for you that you should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10? Do you talk about these kinds of things in your friend group? You should. Husbands and wives, you should talk about this. Honey, how do you think I can maximize my service potential for the kingdom of Christ? What would a life well-lived look for me? Can you help me? Give me your advice. Tell me what you think. Here you are with your sisters. You pray on Wednesday mornings with these women, or you go on a walk with this brother at night, or you guys talk on the phone on your commute, or you gather around the bonfire every now and again, around the dinner table. We should talk about this with one another. How can we best improve our master's assets? What has he given us that we can invest that we might yield a return to him? We should talk about these kinds of things among our groups of friends. 
I want to especially encourage the older folks here to think about this. It's that prophet Neil Young, I think, who said it's better to burn out than to fade away. He spoke better than he knew. Brother, sister, you should be laboring to burn out for Jesus. You have not entered your rest. That day is coming. There are limitations you must accept in older age. Mind doesn't think the same way. Your body doesn't move the same way. Your capacity might shrink some. But we're not to coast to the end. You ever seen someone run a marathon or run a marathon yourself? They sprint the last hundred yards. They want to finish well. May God enable you to finish well. Every quarter or so, every few months, it's not planned, but every few months I drive to Burlington and I get breakfast with two men in their 70s. And it's not because the breakfast is especially great or we have so fun of a time, though sometimes fun is had. I love observing these men and how they try to stimulate and provoke each other to good works. And they talk about their lives. You know, how, much, how much more time do we have left? How can we best use these years in service to Christ? How, how can we, whether it's on our deathbed or when Christ comes back, how can we be found working for the Master in a way that would not give us any cause to be ashamed. Find friends like that in your old age. And youth, you find friends like that in your teenage years. Friends who will stimulate you to serve Christ to your maximal potential. Two more and I'll be done. Number five, study the lives of godly men and women worth imitating. Study the lives of godly men and women worth imitating in history and in this church. Oh, there are men and women in this church worth imitating. My older brother Anthony, 15 years old, identified a pace setter in the church. He's a godly man. He was a deacon. He earned quite a lot of money. He lived for missions. He lived for the church. He lived for his family. And Anthony said, that's how I want to live. He's going to be my pace setter. You know what a pace setter is? It's a car that drives in front that helps set the pace. And here, 17, 18 years on, he's followed in that man's train, doing exactly what that man was doing in his 30s. Find a pace setter like that in history and in the life of the church. That there, I can tell, is a life well lived. And I want to live like that. Number six, no surprises here. Invest heavily in the local church. Invest heavily in the local church. The fact is, for most of us, the greatest works we will do in the kingdom of God will be in the context of the local church. I don't have a verse to supply for you. I'm just telling you, I think that's generally true. You want to develop and learn what your maximum service potential is in the kingdom of God. Rub shoulders with your brothers and sisters. Listen to good sermons. And when missionaries come, be there. And when people are sharing about planting a church and what that might be like, be there and listen and discern. What is God trying to show me to do? I'm not trying to convince you to be a missionary or a pastor. There's all kinds of vocations that are just as pleasing to God as those vocations. What I am saying is acquaint yourself with what God is doing in His church and in His kingdom because His church is the means by which He is changing the world. The church is the means by which He is calling the lost into the kingdom of heaven. The church is the means by which good works are going forward. So invest your life, brothers and sisters, in the local church. Make a bed in the household of God. Rise in the morning and go down at night among the family of God's people. This is the burden of what I've been saying in this sermon. I need to draw to a close, and you've been very patient. You have one life. Ecclesiastes says it's like vapor. It's like a breath. It's like, 
How long is vapor out there? Maybe two seconds? You have this two-second little life. And the Bible may explain, believer and unbeliever alike will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will give an account for the deeds done in the body. We'll give an account for every word that we say. And the Lord Jesus calls us to serve his kingdom and to invest all that we have to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our aim. That is how we're to be living. What should regulate my decisions and my days and my hours is how I can best invest the assets and resources and gifts that God has given me to His glory. Now you might say, Alex, that sounds super intense. I don't disagree with you. I thought the parable of the talents sounded quite intense when Ben read it an hour ago. Seriously, dying sounds intense to me. Appearing before the bar of Jesus sounds intense to me. Heaven and hell sound intense to me. What do you think this life's all about? My friend, life is real and life is earnest. These are serious matters and how you spend your life matters. And the Lord Jesus has not left us without a pattern, without a principle by which we're to live and it's service to the master. Not out of slavish obligation because we're afraid of being condemned but because isn't Christ worthy? Isn't the master worthy? I want to get excited about investing all that he has given me. I want to be like that servant that says, Lord, you gave me five talents and I got five more. I led these five souls to Christ. Would that please you? Will that bring a smile to your face, master? I, I tried to care for needy people in my local church and in my community. Are you honored, Lord? I so want to honor you. You've redeemed me. You've saved me. You've given me everlasting life. I want to live for your glory. I sought to mentor this group of young women, and I sought to care for them, and I wanted to help in presenting them mature in Christ on the last day, because she told me in Colossians 1.29, that's pleasing to you. That's a life well lived. And so I tried, Lord. Here, I know I only had two talents, but Lord, here's two more. Would this honor you? Would this please you? That's a life well lived. Not because we think the Lord's going to be harsh with us and he's going to demand more, but because we love our master and he is worthy of the investment of our lives. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us to get excited about this, to talk about this in our small groups and in our relationships. What is the best that we can do in service to Christ? We may not be able to figure that out, but we can have an idea about it. And you know, churches have lifespans too. How can Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem in this particular context, in this particular age, live for the glory of God? Oh, hasn't he given us resources and assets? How can we invest them to his glory and in his service? It should be that way when we create budgets in this church. It should be that way when volunteers sign up for particular ministries. It should be that way whenever the elders and deacons meet and gather. Stewardship of what the Lord has given us that we might bring a return into the kingdom of God. Husbands and wives parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, friends in this assembly. Let's encourage one another to invest all that we have to the glory of Christ because one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray that you would so move in us and so work in us. We pray that you would supply such grace and such faith that we would live in a way that would give us no cause to be ashamed when we stand before you. Deliver us from the trouble and the sorrow and the regret of a wasted life. Don't let the young people here waste their lives. Intervene and show them how they as servants of the master can live for your glory. Please don't let middle-aged families become distracted by the 10,000 things that vie for their attention and that would sidetrack them and would present impediments and obstacles to their maximum service potential in your kingdom. Please help retired couples and older people. Help them to know how to use the waning years and to know how to live faithfully in the fourth quarter. May they die zealous for the kingdom of God. May they die living for the master as though he would return at any moment. May we be faithful to the final man, final woman, the final breath. Father, none of us believe that you treat us along the lines of some kind of debtor's ethic. That that here you have done this and we must do this in order to be sustained in your good graces. But Lord, we love you. We want to honor you. You've given us so much. You've poured out graces and gifts upon your church and upon your people. Help us to use these assets, these gifts, to the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray that the members of this church would bring into the kingdom of God Two talents, five talents, ten talents, a thousand talents. That the Lord Jesus might be exalted and honored and adored and praised in all things. Would you give us that fruitfulness for the glory of our Savior? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing again.
sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.